Jesus' name we pray, and we all say amen and amen. I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 23, and again, we're going to read almost the entire chapter, so here's what it says. Then the king sent all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron and burned it at the brook of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. Verse 7. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left of, at the great, I'm sorry, at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. Verse 10, And he defiled Tophet, which is the valley of the son of Himnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces. He cast the dust of them into the brook of Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemos, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Verse 15, Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, the altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the man of God, that the man of God, sorry, that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is, it, what is that monument that I see? 
And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. Verse 18. And he said, Let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Verse 21, and the king commanded all the people to keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judge Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year king of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Verse 25, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. This passage that we just read is lengthy, but the theme is one main idea. It's this king, Josiah, removing all the idol worship that had been placed in the temple all the idol shrines that had been placed all around Judah and Jerusalem, and he cleanses out the priests that existed in this time. It is a cleansing of the southern kingdom. Now, in order to understand what we've just read, I want you to turn just one page backwards to chapter 22. And again, we'll read a little bit more. It's okay. We're in God's house, and this is what we do. We read the Bible, but there are some important things that I want you to know about Josiah before we get into chapter 23. So here's how he gets introduced in chapter 22. Verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscat, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. What I want you to note in, verse, in chapter 22, verse 1, is this introduction, specifically in verse 2. His father is David. Now, literally, his father is not David. What the author of 2 Kings is letting us know is that Josiah is coming out of this lineage of David. He, he, he belongs to this great line of kings, so he is a descendant of David. And we read Deuteronomy chapter 17 in our scripture reading, an emphasis on what an ideal king should be like. And what I mentioned to you is that one of the things in that passage is he has to be one amongst his brothers. He has to be a Jew. So this author is already letting us know Josiah is fulfilling that ideal king that we read in Deuteronomy 17. But there's a, another direct quotation from that passage. 
He is one who would not turn aside to the right or to the left. That is a direct quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 20. In other words, Josiah as a king would be a king that would be focused on the things of the Lord. A few other things that I want you to note from chapter 22. We won't read them, but if you're taking notes, I'm going to highlight a few passages here. In verse 8, as Hilkiah is counting the money in the temple, he discovers a book of the law. Now the king before Josiah was Manasseh, and he reigned 55 years. You can read that in chapter 21. But for whatever reason, that king had put aside the book of the law. And so the book of the law is found in verse 8. And this leads to Josiah in chapter 23 to continue his cleansing of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, if you read the other account of this story in 2 Chronicles 34, you'll see that Josiah at the age of 12 had begun this cleansing prior to finding the book. But when he finds the book, this cleansing, this purification of Judah and Jerusalem gets intensified. We, we learn in chapter two, 22, verse 11, that when Josiah is read the book, when they read the book to him, he tears off his clothes. Now the tearing off of clothes for kings is a sign of humility, is a sign of repentance. So Josiah is read this book that has been found and he immediately repents. Why does he repent? Because he sees what he has known all along, but now it becomes evident that his people, his town, is in full idol worship. Now the question is, well, what happened to the book? Why had the book been found? Now I want you to read, go with me to 2 Kings 21, verse 4, and I promise after this we'll jump into chapter 23. But look at what the author of 2 Kings tells us about Manasseh. This is why the book had been lost. Verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In verse 3, we learn that these altars are altars to Baal and to Asherah and to hosts of heaven armies. The emphasis here is that this king who reigned for 55 years prior to Josiah decided that he would move the book of the law to the side and that instead of the book of the law in the forefront, as the main attraction, he would raise up Baal altars and altars to Asherah and altars to all of heaven's hosts. I want you to see that it's not that the book had been lost and no one knew where it was at. We know this because if you read the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there are kings that came across this book and obeyed the book. But what the author wants us to know is that for 55 years, as we see in chapter 21, during Manasseh's reign, the book had been set aside. It wasn't lost, it was just ignored. And we must raise the question before I go into chapter 23, where's the book in your life? Not the book of the law, but this book. The book of the Bible. Where is it at in your life as a list of priorities? Where are the scriptures in your life? Are they just simply set aside, ignored? Because look, we live in the United States. Access to this book 
is everywhere. You can even get it on your mobile devices now. There's an app for this book. You can get it anywhere and everywhere you go. The problem in the United States is not a lack of resource in the book. The problem with most Christians in the United States is that we do exactly what Manasseh did. We set it aside. We simply ignore it. It's no longer important to us. And as a result of Manasseh setting the book aside, he put on the forefront idol worship. And then we get to chapter 23. Chapter 23 is a destruction of everything that Manasseh had set up and that other kings before Manasseh had set up. So let's begin in chapter 23. I'm going to read verse 3. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. I want to make a correction from the translation here. A better understanding of this is not that they joined but rather they were in the covenant. Now, why were they in the covenant? This is the first thing Josiah does. As he reads in verse 2 the book of the law to the people, the first thing he does is he begins to establish a covenant with God and he stands on the pillar. This is the Hebrew way of saying he stood before the people as a representative of the people. In other words, we have to think back all the way to Moses. Moses was a priest before the people and he was a representative to the people. As Moses did, the people followed. Now again, not always. If you read Numbers, there's uh, numerous accounts of rebellions. But the idea is, as Moses led, the people followed. And here Josiah, he stands on the pillar And he makes a covenant. He knows that the law has been broken. And in order for him to continue in a right relationship with God, he has to establish a covenant. An animal needs to be sacrificed. Incense needs to be burned. And that's why we see the ending of this covenant in verses 21 through 23 with the meal of the Passover. That is the ending of the covenant that gets started in verse 3. Now, the rest of these verses or the meat of this narrative are all the destructions of idol worship. He destroys all of the idols that had been made during this time. And so look at verse 4 where the destruction begins. And he deposed the priest, I'm sorry, verse 4, and the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Josiah enters the temple and he sees all of these idols that had been put by the kings before him. And he tells Hilkiah, bring those idols out of the temple. And he begins to destroy them. And in verse 5, and I'll move along quickly here through, through this narrative. In verse 5, he removes the priests in Judah and around Jerusalem, which the kings had placed. Now, here is something that we must note. 
And I'm not trying to show off on, 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 on the understanding of the Hebrew, but, but the word here used in Hebrew is super important. Normally when you see the word priest, you're expecting to read Kohen, but here you read Komer, which is an emphasis on these priests were idol-worshipping priests. They were not priests that were worshipping Yahweh. So, so think about this. In the past, most likely Manasseh thought, oh, I know what would be a nice thing to do to the temple. Let's add fake priests, false priests, not real priests. Let's add fake priests who are not going to teach the people the ways of the Lord. They can't. They're not priests to God. They're priests to idols, to the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all the heavenly hosts that we read in verse 4. These priests were put in place by kings before Josiah to lead the people to idol worship in the temple. Now you and I may say, whoa, wow, that's, that's rough. That's Old Testament craziness there. But we're, new, we're not too far off in our day either. We must analyze how many preachers lead us to health and wealth and prosperity and further and further and further away from God? This is what these priests had done in verse 5. And so what does Josiah do? He removes them. They're not fit to be in the temple, so they're Removed in verse 6, he burns Asherah in the brook of Kidron. And to add emphasis to this destruction, he grabs her dust and he puts it on the graves. Now the brook of Kidron is very significant throughout the Old Testament. But specifically in Josiah's time, this valley was a cemetery. You think about any cemetery, you see gravestone after gravestone after gravestone. And time and time again in this chapter, Josiah will grab all these idols, he'll crush them, and then he'll throw them into the cemetery. And to add emphasis to this account in verse 6, he grabs the dust. It's not enough to just pulverize this idol, but he grabs the dust and he throws it on the graves. Now, why does he do this? In the law, in the Old Testament, anyone who touched a dead corpse was considered impure, defiled. They were considered unholy. What is the emphasis that Josiah wants the people to see in verse 6? He wants them to see that Asherah was always unholy. She was always defiled. She was always unworthy. She was always deserving to be placed in the gravestones because she was not worthy of worship. It is, it is such a, a grievous act, but the, the, the idea is for the people to respond and open their eyes and see that their idols do not compare to God. And I hope that this morning we could see and realize that our idols what the culture presents to us as important are impure compared to a holy God. You can't put them on the same pedestal. You can't put them in the same level. And in verse 6, this is the emphasis. And time and time again, you'll see this as we read. These idols are placed in the brook of Kidron because they're not worthy 
of worship. In verse 7, he continues this purification of the temple and he breaks down the male cult prostitutes. Now here, it's an emphasis of both male and female sexual acts of worship in the temple, most likely to Ashtoreth. And what does Josiah do? He sees these rooms and he destroys them. He brings them down to shreds. But again, these things were taking place in the temple. All because a king decided that the book of the law was not as important to follow as it was to be raising up these idols of worship. In verse 8, he brings down all the priests. And I want you to note here, these priests are different from verse 5. These priests are priests to the Lord. Again, in English, we read priests and priests, but the priests in verse 5 are a reference. They are an emphasis to idol-worshiping priests who led the people to idol worship. In verse 8, these priests are priests that worship God. And yet, look at what the passage says in verse 8. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings. Now it is most probable that these priests did make offerings to God. So what is their sin? Their sin is a sin of silence. And that's why they're removed. These priests should have seen all these idols that had been placed all in the temple and they should have spoken up. They should have said, this is wrong. This is not what we ought to do. And instead, they just became one of the many. God just became one of the many deities that was worshipped in the temple. You see, the point here is, is that these priests did not speak up. They didn't say anything. And, and I'll make this case when we read about the priests in Samaria later on in this chapter, but there is a distinction in verse 5 with priests who worship idol and these priests who although did everything correctly still get removed because of their silence. In verse 9, we learn that these priests were all over Judah, but they could not enter Jerusalem. And if you're taking notes, write down Leviticus 21, verses 22 through 23. The reason why these priests could not offer sacrifice in Jerusalem is most likely because they were defected. And under the law, a defected priest could not enter Jerusalem. What do I mean by defect? They probably had a limp. They probably had, uh, uh, they were probably mute or deaf or blind. And under the law, these priests could serve as priests. Again, that's in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. But they were limited in their entrance of Jerusalem. And we also see that they received the priestly tithe. Again, emphasis that these priests were most likely following the ways of the Lord or leading the people to worship, but their sin and why they're removed is because they remained silent in the midst of chaos. They gave in to the culture. They ignored what the culture was doing at this time. In verse 10, Josiah moves from the temple and begins to cleanse the neighboring cities. Look at verse 10. This is the place of Tophet. 
and he defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Himnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. This was a deity that required the burning of children as a means of sacrifice. Now, I want you to, to think about how adulterous Manasseh had made this, this, this region become. It, it wasn't enough to just worship these deities of Baal and Asherah. He placed a city where people could take sacrifices and burn their children. Now, you think that's bad. Go back to chapter 21 with me. I'm going to read verse 11. And here's what 21 verse 11 says, because Manasseh, king of Judah, had committed these abominations and had done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also sin with its idols. He had made Judah sin with the idols. And what I wanted to read was verse 6, and here's what it says, and he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens that dealt with medians and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In verse 6, we see that Manasseh most likely sacrificed his own son to Molech. It wasn't just that this guy was a fan of idol worship. He participated in it. He led the people to it. This is emphatic of the kind of king that had been prior to Josiah. And so when Josiah enters the city, he removes it. He removes this sacrificing of children. Verses 11 through 14, Josiah continues now not purifying the temple, but purifying the regions. In verse 11, this is interesting, he removes horses that were given to worship by the kings of Judah. Again, an emphasis of the kings before him who used horses to worship other deities. Now, what's interesting here is, out of all the passages in the Old Testament, and in fact, in, in, in Scripture itself, this is the only emphasis to horses being used for worship. And yet, time and time again, when excavations are made around the regions of this era, you see images of horses being used for worship. This lets us know that Manasseh was into all kinds of idol worship. This is what the author wants to let us know, that the kings before him, any idol worship you could think of, these guys practice. Any idol images you can think of in this time, they put them at the forefront. They set aside the scriptures. They set aside the book of the law. And they said, our main attraction is going to be idols and idols and more idols and more idols and more altars that lead the people further and further and further away from worshiping God. I want you to note the gravity of this sin, but again, all because the book of the law was ignored. It was set aside. It's not that it had been lost. It was found because it had been ignored by Manasseh and other kings before him. And so in verse 11, these horses are removed. In verse 12, a reference 
to other kings. And also in verse 13, look what it says. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, he was also a wicked king, which the kings of Judah had made. And the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them in the brook of Kidron. Again, he puts them in the cemetery. Why? It's an emphasis that these idols had always been unholy. They had always been defiled. He wants the people to see that they were unclean because they had been worshiping these idols. In verse 13, And the king defiled the high places that were at the east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemos, the abominations of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse 14, And he broke in pieces the pillars, and cut down the Asherim, and filled their places with the bones of men. Think about this. Since King Solomon... He was the last king when the kingdom was united. But since King Solomon, no other king had removed these idols. No other king had gone to, this says, the Mount of Corruption. It's actually the Mount of Olives. And no other king had gone up to the Mount of Olives and removed these idols. Now, the author of 2 Kings does something here that's important as well. In Hebrew, the Mount of Olives is Har Hamisha, Har for Mount or Hill, Hamisha, Olives. Here's the emphasis. The Mount of Olives is a place where, a place of anointing. It's a place where people get anointed. It is a place that is considered holy ground. But the author refuses to call the mountain for what it is. And instead, it's a Hebrew play on words. He says, Har Hamashit. Again, Har Hamisha, Mount of Olives, Har Hamashit is the Mount of Corruption. The, the point that the author is trying to make is that he can't even call it a Mount of Holiness or of Anointing because it's corrupted. It's been defiled. And so instead of calling it for what it is, the name that it, it's titled after, he does a play on words. So that the people can see that the place of holy ground has been corrupted because of idol worship. Again, it is an emphasis of the kings before Josiah and the, 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 the love for idol worship. Their hearts had been completely turned. So what does he do? He destroys them in verse 14. He removes them. And again, another emphasis to defilement. He puts them on the bones of men. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, which says, Whoever touches human bone or graves shall be unclean for seven days. This is the point. That every time these people went up to this mount of olives or this mount of corruption, as the author makes here, every time they touched that ground, they were unclean. They had become unclean. They were worshiping unclean things. And so he begins to not only purify the temple, but all the cities in Judah and in Jerusalem, all the neighboring areas of the southern kingdom. And then we move to the third aspect of Josiah's cleansing. He moves to the northern kingdom. 
Now, if you remember, way back when we were in Hosea, we discussed that in the time of the kings, there were two kingdoms. The kingdom of the north called Israel that was composed of ten tribes located in the region of Samaria. And then the king of the south was the other division, which, was, which is where Judah was found. There was two tribes there. And so the kingdom had been divided. And up until this point, the kingdom stood divided. There was a king in the north and a king in the south, except, as you remember, and this is why I'm, I'm reminding you of Hosea, Hosea warns of a judgment that was coming to the kingdom of the north. And by the time we get to Josiah's reign, the kingdom of the north had been conquered just as Hosea had prophesied and Assyria had demolished that kingdom of the north. So although the kingdom of the north exists in region and in title, it was no longer a kingdom under God's reign. It was a kingdom other, under Assyrian reign. The Assyrians had wiped out and conquered this kingdom. And during this time, Assyria was beginning to lose its power to the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And therefore, Josiah goes all the way to the kingdom of the north and begins to cleanse that region. It had been the first time, and this is how I want you to see how Josiah is this ideal king of Deuteronomy 17. It had been the first time since King Solomon that a king was making decisions not just in the south, but also in the north. Now, the kingdom had not yet been united, but this is what the author wants us to see. That union between the two kingdoms is coming. So what does he do in verse 15, he goes all the way to Bethel, and he begins to make purifications at Bethel. And then in verse 16 and 18 through 18, we learn of a prophet who had prophesied to Jeroboam that this would take place. I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 13, because it's amazing how spot on this prophecy is. This is hundreds of years before Josiah, 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, look what it says. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. This is most likely one of the, the altars that, that he made of, of bronze, this, these bronze images that he made of a golden calf, sorry, of the golden calf. And then in verse 2 it says, And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. He not only prophesies in 1 Kings that this would happen, but he gets the name right. Josiah by name. I'm amazed when I read Old Testament prophecy and then I hear prophecy in our century. It's never accurate. It's never specific. It's always general. I prophesy anyone who's sick will be healed. Well, that's not specific. And even in a room of 50 there's most likely that one of you is sick. That does not make me a true prophet. This prophecy here is an emphasis of the kind of prophets that God was looking for and had raised up in the Old Testament. Prophets who stand boldly against 
the culture. He goes to the king. He goes to his altar and he says, you will be burned in this altar. And Josiah, the king by name, will do this. He'll place the bones over your body. And that's exactly what happens in these verses. In verse 19, look, of chapter 23, I'm going to read it to you, what Josiah does. And again, it's a complete makeover of what these kings had done. Josiah removed all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So I want you to think about this. No king had reigned in the north. And here this guy comes. He goes all the way to the north, removes all this idol worship, and he sacrifices these priests. Again, the word here used, Kohen. We've, we've learned so far three references to priests. The priests in chapter five, verse 5, I'm sorry, who are idol worshiping priests. The priests in chapter 8 and, and verses 8 and 9 who are priests that, yes, they made sacrifices to God, but their sin was silenced, so they were removed. But these priests in Samaria, their sin is even more grievous because instead of making altars and sacrifices to God as they were supposed to do as priests of God, they were actually raising sacrifices to idols. It is what the New Testament calls wolves in sheep clothing. It is the priest who looks the part, yet leads the people to idol worship in a very grievous way. And that's why these priests, out of all the other priests that we've read, actually get killed. They get sacrificed. Now this is strong language, but it's showing us Josiah's love and desire to please the Lord, to restore what had been lost. And this whole chunk that I just went through in a very rapid fire way are all the cleansings that Josiah does. Now, why does he do this? Well, one, again, is a result of the book of the law being found is a result, as we learn in chapter 22, of Josiah seeking after God like no other king before him. But he also does this because, just like Hosea had prophesied of doom, in this time and in this age, there was doom prophesied for the kingdom of the south. They were prophesied destruction. And Josiah is trying to limit the destruction, to appease the destruction. And as I've already mentioned, verses 21 through 24, we see that he ends this covenant started in verse 23 as by, by making a Passover meal. Now, if you remember in the Passover, a lamb is slain and then they eat the Passover meal. Again, when a covenant is established, a lamb has to be slain. But just like we learned in verse 3, as Josiah stands before the people like Moses, here is a reference that Josiah is also like Joshua. Now, it's important to note that in the Bible, at least, the last reference to a Passover meal is Joshua chapter 5. 
And after Joshua, there are no references of Passover meals. You don't see it in the book of Judges, and you don't see it in the book of First or Second Kings. That doesn't mean that the Passover wasn't celebrated. There's just no emphasis of it in the rest of scriptures until this moment. So some scholars argue that it is most likely that no Passover was celebrated at all until Josiah does a Passover. Now where I tend to stand is that it's most likely letting us know that no Passover had been celebrated statewide since the time of Joshua, who also did a Passover meal where all of Israel gathered together and celebrated. But the point here is that the author wants us to know that just like Joshua, Josiah is very similar. Joshua begins with the Passover and then begins to conquer the Canaanite lands, removing their idols. Josiah does it the other way. He begins by removing the idols and then he celebrates the Passover meal. So Josiah is linked not only to David, but also to Moses and also to the great leading conqueror of Israel, Joshua. In verse 24, he removes the mediums and the necromancers. And this is an emphasis to false prophecy. In Josiah's time, people went to mediums and necromancers to consult the dead to receive prophetic utterance. Again, it's, it's, it's letting us know it, it, what the author wants us to see in chapter 23 is that any way you could think of unpleasing the Lord, these kings did. Anywhere, whether it be with the priest, whether it be with idol worship, the category again of priest, the category of worship, and even the category of prophetic utterance, these guys had defiled them all. And so Josiah gets rid of them. And why does he get rid of them? Look at verse 24. It says that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. In order to remove false prophecy, he needs to reestablish the words written in the book. And to give an application of our times, as long as people are looking for revelation outside the book, they'll continue to ignore the revelation that's in the book. Let me state it a different way. As long as people say, oh God, what are you going to speak to me today? Let me go to Chick-fil-A and maybe God will speak to me there. Maybe God will speak to me in my dreams. Let me go to the next apostolic or the next prophetic or whatever convention is in town. And as long as people are going everywhere but the scriptures to look for revelation, we will miss the revelation that is in the book. And time and time and time again, I hear Christians saying, God hasn't spoken to me. And my question always is, well, have you read the book? Because he's got a lot to say in this book. 66 books in one book. There's a lot of God in this book. And all the revelation we need from God is in this book. And Josiah knows it. So he removes the false prophecy so that people would return to the book. Go back to the book of the law. Verse 25 lets us know there was no other king like him, none before him. Even David was not like Josiah. And remember, David committed adultery. He failed in his kingship. And there was no king like him after, at least in the Old Testament, that is. The point of verse 25 is 
Josiah is the ideal king of Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. He is the ideal king, yet I want to read verse 26, and this is why we went all the way to 26. Despite of everything Josiah does, look what it says, still the Lord did not turn from burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. In other words, what the rest of this chapter lets us know is that destruction is coming anyway. Now why? Why are these changings, these cleansings that Josiah does, this Passover meal, why are these not enough? And the grammar is clear here. All the verbs of action are in the third person singular. Not plural, singular. Let me, let me prove it to you. Let's recap this verse, these verses that we've read. Verse 23, he, singular, he, Josiah, singular, sends and gathers the elders. Verse 2, he goes up to the house, singular, of the Lord, and he, singular, reads the book. Verse 3, he stands and makes a covenant. Verse 4, he commands the priest to remove the idols from the temple, and he burns them. Verse 5, he gets rid of the idol priest. Verse 6, he breathes out Asherah from the house of the Lord and burns her. Verse 7, he he breaks down the cult prostitute houses. Verse 10, he defiles the city of Tophet. Verse 11, he removes the horses used for idol worship. Verse 12, he breaks down the altars made by Ahaz and Manasseh. Verse 13, he defiles King Solomon's idols, cuts them down, placing them on dead bones. If you're still not convinced, verse 19, he alone removes the altars in Samaria. Verse 20, uh, 20 he commands a Passover. Verse 24, he removes the necromancers and verse 25 he and he alone turns to his God where are the rest of the people they're not in this text one thing we can learn from Josiah it may not be popular to follow the Lord but it's worth it it may not be popular. You may have to stand alone. And, and this is not just for young people, but for all the adults in the room. Culture is very enticing. And I see way too many Christians giving in to culture, following culture, trying to be in, in the, in the hottest trends of culture. And you see this even in the churches of America today and around the world, these, these big congregations where preachers are so in love with the culture that they've forgotten to turn to God. And the teaching of God is sacrificed for cultural uh, relevance. And yet, this is the emphasis that Josiah stands alone. It may be a lonely road for the Christian, but better to be alone and our hearts to God than with the crowd and our hearts far from God. And yet, this action is not enough. Why? Because the people could care less about what Josiah does. Yes, they follow, but if you keep reading chapters 23 and chapters 24 of 2 Kings, you learn that immediately after Josiah's death, surprise, surprise, his sons raise idols and the people go back to worshiping idols. And the end of 2 Kings is a reminder that Babylon comes and conquers this group. 
Judah gets conquered in the south. Josiah, as the ideal king of Deuteronomy, shows us another thing. Theologically, it shows us the lack of power of the book of the law. The law was never intended to save. So even when it is obeyed, Josiah lets us know it is a reminder that if we want salvation, we can't do it with the law. We need King Jesus. You and I need King Jesus to redeem us, to save us from our sin. All of Josiah's actions, yes, they're noble. Yes, they're a model for us to follow. But it is a reminder that you and I don't need a Josiah as a king. We need King Jesus. And I have to raise the question, is he your king? Is he my king? Are we under the reign of this King Jesus? That's why Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The emphasis of Galatians is because the law couldn't save us, we needed a king. You and I are not here this morning celebrating the Passover. We're celebrating the greater Passover, communion. Because our Redeemer was not a Redeemer who could not redeem. Josiah is a great king. He is a king who loves the Lord, but he could not redeem his people. Our Savior can redeem us. This is the connection to the New Testament that King Jesus can redeem us and not just from Babylonian captivity or any nation. He can redeem us from the problem of sin. He can save us from the problem of sin. He is the only one who can circumcise our hearts or to put it another way, He can turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And I want you to stand with me this morning. And if Jesus is your king, we're going to get ready to partake of the communion here. I'm just going to grab the elements. And if you have your, your Bible, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Josiah was a good king, but he's not King Jesus. And this is why, again, you and I are not celebrating the Passover meal, but we're celebrating communion because communion reminds us of our union with Christ. I want to read this passage to you as we close this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. This is what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and we had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I'm going to stop right there. Communion is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. And the first thing I want to highlight in this passage is there is a warning to fellow believers. One, and we must note this, anyone who partakes of the bread and drinks of the cup must be a believer. If you're not a believer, this is not a meal that you partake in lest you bring condemnation upon yourself. Now, why is this so serious? Because again, it is a reminder that we're united with our King Jesus. If we have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, there is no union with Christ, and therefore we can't partake of this meal. But there's another warning in this passage that we should look to our hearts and emphasize where we are with Christ today. And so, what Paul wants us to note here is that as it, we examine ourselves, we should remember not just if we are believers, but if we've been practicing sin. And if we have, this is not the time to quickly repent and take communion lest you bring condemnation on yourself. Or it is also not the time to partake of communion if we're in disagreement or in a fight, to use a better term, with our brothers and sisters in Christ because communion isn't just something that reminds us of our union with Christ. It reminds us of our unions as brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys are my brothers and you guys are my sisters. But if I am in a fight with any of you, I cannot partake of this meal lest there be condemnation. So that is the warning of the Lord's table. But this invitation, despite the warning, also reminds us of King Jesus and what he did for us. And in the past, we remember that when we were not worthy of salvation, he bled on the cross and he died for the forgiveness of our sins. We take of the bread in remembrance of the wounds that he received and the blood of the cup in remembrance of the blood that was spilled on the cross. And yet, while there's a past reference, there's also a present reference that Christ is spiritually present with us today. He is here with us as we partake of this meal. And it is a reminder that whoever drinks of his blood belongs to him and whoever eats of his bread is a part of him. It is a reminder that these elements presently bring nourishment to our spiritual life because he is the bread of life he is our life and it is also a declaration of the future glory when we partake of the lord's table we can be assured that christ is coming back 
and he's coming back for his bride. He's coming back for his church. And one day, we will not just eat this meal with him spiritually present, but he will physically be there with us. We will see him face to face. This is the beauty that you and I get to do this morning. And so I'm going to ask that you grab your bread. And we take the bread as a reminder of the wounds that he received for the forgiveness and the healing, not of our illnesses or our sickness, but of sin. So as you bow your head, I want you to pray with me and give thanks for the bread of life. Father, we thank you. Because Jesus, as you were crushed, in your crushing, we have life. Lord, we take of this bread in thankfulness of who you are, thanking you for being the great king who redeemed us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may eat of the bread. And at the same time, the cup is a reminder of Jesus' blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We have been cleansed because our Savior, our King, bled and died. And let's just pray and give thanks to God for his blood. Jesus, we thank you this morning. Our hearts rejoice because of what you've done. We are in gratitude because of your sacrifice, Jesus. And this morning, we joyfully and gratefully partake of this cup, full of thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say amen and amen. You may drink of the cup this morning. And just like in the Gospels, when the disciples had finished eating their meal, they worshiped together. We want to end this service Again, reminding, I want to end reminding you that as good as Josiah was, we have a greater king in King Jesus. Let's just sing to him and worship him one last time.